30 Brave Minutes is a podcast of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. In 30 Brave Minutes, we'll give you something interesting to think about. Joining the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, Jeff Frederick, are faculty from the Department of Psychology. With him are Dr. Kelly Charlton and Dr. Rachel Morrison. Their topic for today is the interaction and connection between humans and animals. Get ready for 30 Brave Minutes. Admit it, you're crazy about animals. You love your dogs and cats. You probably also stop on Facebook to watch videos of goats and trees or a lioness caring for her pride of cubs, born blind and needing literally to learn everything just to survive. And the numbers bear out that Americans love animals. 60% of Americans have a pet or pets. 44% of Americans own a dog and 29% own a cat, although more families have dogs than cats. The number of cats is greater given that it's more likely for a person or family to have multiple cats than to have multiple dogs. Among all pet owners, 73% own a dog and 49% own a cat. Pet ownership among the American public breaks down this way. 27% own a dog but not a cat. 12% own a cat but not a dog. 17% own both. 3% own pets other than cats or dogs, and 40% do not want any part of any of them. Doubtless, whether our animals fulfill service roles, are working animals, emotional support animals, or just fill our lives through their constant companionship, they become family. Research indicates the bond between humans and animals provides great value to both parties, reduced anxiety, improved physical and mental health, and a sense of shared responsibility. Research by McCune et al. in the journal Animal Frontiers identifies that, quote, in the United States, an estimated 14% of people over the age of 65 share their lives with pets, and studies have found that older adults with dogs tend to be more physically active than those without and retain their physical activity for longer duration. In 2013, the American Heart Association issued a scientific statement concluding that, quote, pet ownership, particularly dog ownership, is probably associated with decreased risk of cardiovascular disease and that it may have some causal role in reducing this risk. It's not as simple as get a dog, get in shape, but the benefits are real. Of course, all these numbers about pet ownership, positive benefits, and the joy of human-animal bonds fluctuate a bit from year to year, but they echo an important point. Animals are important to our identity, living arrangements, and daily life as well. It should be noted that sometimes this doesn't work out just perfectly. Some animals and some humans don't fit all that well together, especially if a person without much home time tries to socialize a pet that needs more substantial interaction. Animals, like humans, can be stressed, and that is a challenge for the animal and for the person. And on some matters of the human-animal connection, more research needs to be completed. Sanders et al. in a 2017 study noted that, quote, mental health benefits of interacting with animals outside the therapeutic environment have been studied less, in part because of the difficulties of carrying out methodologically rigorous research outside the controlled environment of therapy. In other words, we know a good bit about human-animal relationships, but there is much left to be explored. Like, what about non-pets? What are we to make of the connection between humans and other animals within or outside of shared spaces? 
Here to discuss all things human and humans and animals are two psychologists with professional and personal experience. Joining me to talk about the interaction and connection between humans and animals are Dr. Kelly Charlton and Dr. Rachel Morrison. Welcome. Thank Welcome. you. Welcome. Hello. How do animals connect to uh, other animals? How do animals connect to humans? What are the basic assumptions that we have about each other? So that's a great question, and depending on the species of animal, they're going to connect with each other differently. So I can talk best about social animals because, of course, we humans are social, Um, and I've studied other social animals like dolphins. But one thing that we do see is that animals will bond with siblings. Um, They'll bond with the mother. The mother-offspring bond is a close bond. Um, They will bond with mates. Um, We know in some species, they form lifelong friendships, coalitions we call them. We see that with dolphins. We see that with chimpanzees. One of the things that we know that's facilitating this bond is the release of oxytocin, which is a hormone that a lot of animals release, mammals in particular. So us humans release that. Some people call it the cuddle chemical, right? So it's this oxytocin that allows that bond formation. And so we know it's being released when animals are bonding with each other. It's the, I'm so happy to see you. Yes, exactly. It makes us all feel really good. And then when it comes to bonding with humans, it's a little bit harder to answer that question because we don't really know what the animals are necessarily thinking, but we do know that both dogs and humans are releasing oxytocin when they are interacting with each other as well. So part of what facilitates non-human animal bonds towards humans is also the release of the same chemical. So just stroking your dog, for example. So we sort of have this bond that we establish. It releases this hormone almost involuntarily because we're so drawn to each other? Yeah, well... I don't know if I would say, it's hard to say that we're drawn to each other. What is it that is drawing the non-human animal to the human is a good question. Um, I think a lot of it is learning-based, right? So basic learning theories would tell us that, hey, if there's a positive relationship or a positive outcome, then I want to approach that individual, right? So animals, of course, if they have a positive interaction with humans based off of prior experience, they're going to want to approach that individual. And Kelly, you you understand this both as a, from the behavioral standpoint, but also as a mother of more than one animal. Yes, of a of a pack currently of seven dogs. When Dr. Morrison was talking about oxytocin, um, it's the it's also the human bonding hormone. So humans have oxytocin released in their system when they're bonding with other humans or their children. And so um, she mentioned stroking, that when you're stroking a dog, you get an oxytocin boost in both the dog and the human, but also eye contact and gazing. When you are gazing at a, at a dog or a domestic dog and, and, they are, and they are gazing back at you, both human and dog are releasing oxytocin. And so I always like to think when my dogs are staring at me, they're hugging me with their eyes. I think I read that or saw that description somewhere, and it was that perfect sort of expression of that 
what we would anthropomorphize as affection, but it, it is. It's the same kind of bond that humans have with each other. And that eye contact and that wagging tail and that excitability factor, everybody is just in that moment. It just cements all of this. It's so exciting to come home at the end of the day and your dog is so thrilled to greet you. Like, where have you been? I didn't know if you were coming back and you're here. It's so exciting. Yeah, there's so many anecdotal stories of animals that... Um, have separation anxiety when their owners leave or animals even that refuse to eat when their owner dies. And, you know, it's hard to not assume that that's some type of grief, right? That's what we would say. This animal is grieving the loss of their owner. And even though we can't scientifically know for sure what is going on inside that dog's head, we know that, you know, a member of that animal's social group is gone that bond has been broken. And so that does affect them in a similar way it would affect us. And our perception as humans of what we think that animals are thinking becomes then our reality, whether it's the animal's reality or not. Exactly. So that's, I think, what makes this research so hard is that as humans, we try to, I guess, use our perspective and reality and place that on the animal. This whole idea of anthropomorphism, right, is, is you know, is that dog happy? Is that dog sad? And there's nothing wrong with doing that. I think it helps people actually form better connections with their animals to try to understand them more. And the science does show that animals do have basic emotion systems. There's been amazing work done by um Yak Pogsip, who is a researcher in affective neuroscience. So he pretty much studies how emotion systems work in non-human animals and humans. And he has shown seven different basic emotion systems in non-human animals, in mammals in particular, that go right along with what we experience. We have the same brain structures that those animals have, so we know that they are experiencing these basic emotions, things like joy, rage, love, right? He, He terms them this. He did a lot of really cool research. You can actually YouTube tickling rats and and laughing rats. I don't know if you've heard of this. Um, Really cool stuff that really... I guess helps us see that, hey, maybe some of this anthropomorphizing isn't all wrong, right? We actually. And this bond that we create with different animals helps us to have a sense when we walk in the door if they are a little shy, maybe they did something they weren't supposed to, maybe they were sleeping on that couch all day and they were not really supposed to, or that excitement that they have, or all the, the bond helps us to really understand the cues they're giving us, right? It, it does, I think. I think a lot of the cues that they give us, too, are cues that they've been rewarded for giving or punished for giving. You know, when a dog acts guilty, some of that guilt act is, from the dog's perspective, please don't hurt me for whatever has happened. Because you're giving cues when you look at every bit of your trash emptied from the trash can, that, that it is a problem in your environment. So we've conditioned we, them to act in certain ways. We really do. In the same way if a dog acts or an animal acts fearful and we cuddle them, we are providing them reinforcement for fear behaviors. And so sometimes when we have, just like with human children, when they have behaviors that we don't understand, it is often the case or sometimes the case that we have created it by what we've reinforced or punished. And it's the same thing with 
with dogs or what other animals so you we have may, in your environment. We may not even understand the set of stimuluses that are leading to these sorts of responses. We've baked it in without even knowing it. Exactly. And I, I, I honestly think that as animals, we are the worst at reading cues of other animals. I will say that. I think dogs are so much better at picking up on our cues and our body language. Because as humans, we don't communicate solely through body language. Right. We use right spoken word and so we're texting each other yeah, right okay yeah so social media okay but we're not great at picking up on those behavioral cues and so sometimes i think we misread some of the behavioral cues that our pets or other any other animals that we're around are giving us and we often do reinforce behaviors that maybe we don't particularly know we're reinforcing We'll return to Jeff Frederick and his guests in just a moment. The faculty and staff at the College of Arts and Sciences are changing lives through education. To learn more about our departments and accredited programs, as well as student and faculty achievements, explore our website. Additional news and events may be found by following us on Facebook at UNCP College of Arts and Sciences. Remember, you can subscribe to 30 Brave Minutes on Podbean and iTunes. You can also join us in changing lives by donating to the College of Arts and Sciences on our website. Thanks for listening, and now back to 30 Brave Minutes. So how, how do psychologists, for that matter, psychiatrists, think about using animals um, to build empathy, to do therapy, those kinds of things? So there's been quite a bit of research that has looked at children interacting with animals and how empathy develops. And there's a lot of data that shows that children who have had early experiences with animals have higher competence in empathy. They are more empathic towards other humans, towards other animals. And actually... And all these are desirable outcomes. Yes, these are all positive things. They have better, higher self-esteem in some situations from interacting um, with animals, it really does facilitate the social aspect of being a human because we are social. And so interacting with that animal gives them a chance to really develop these skills, especially for kids who maybe are less likely to be outgoing with other humans. For whatever reason, studies have shown that children seem to really relate to animals better than sometimes adults. Um, And so it really does become a bridge, especially if you're going to start, you know, using animals in the therapeutic situation. If you observed humans and animals interacting for a while, say a specific human, would you be able to gather some behavioral observations just from that? Absolutely. Uh, Both from the perspective of, you know, the human and And also the the animal. I think that you could... First of all, you could notice the comfort level in the individual change. So a human who maybe is in a stressful situation, you can almost automatically see them let go, right? You can just see the body kind of loosen up a little bit. The tension levels are released. Um, And similarly with the animal. I mean, most animals that are in therapeutic situations are already pretty calm in that situation. But I actually saw a video of... Um, recently on CBS This Morning, there is a farm in Massachusetts that 
it's not just a farm. It's a mental facility, a mental health facility where they do all of their therapy sessions. And a little girl was being interviewed and she has anxiety issues. And she said that she feels that she needs to be calm so that she can help the animals stay calm. And it helps her in turn deal with her anxiety. It's wonderful to see that change. And it's, it's almost instantaneous in a lot of situations. Would it be fair to say that humans who have exhibit negative behaviors toward animals um, lack some ability to create empathy? Or if they were prone at a stage of development to do violence to animals, would that be uh, something that, that would register in terms of behavioral health? It might uh, register in terms of behavioral health. The first thing, of course, that comes to mind is um, animal abuse is a predictor of future behavior that is harmed to other humans. I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I believe that it's actually one of the, the criteria of harm to animals as a child, predicting um, antisocial behavior later on as an adult. And so... Certainly when we look at some of those disorders, we do see a lack of empathy as part of them. And so it might just be something that was kind of built in or something that came from, you know, what causes those disorders um, can be environmental as a child. It could be some genetic component, as I'm, I'm trying to recall the research that I've read on, on that. Um, but you will see that lack of recognition that this other alive being is hurting or being harmed. It's just not, it doesn't register. I know uh, one of the trends in therapy is equine therapy or a a variety of different things that allows uh, humans to develop an ability to express their feelings, all kinds of feelings, by working directly with animals. So equine therapy, dolphin therapy, I mean, there's there are therapy animals for multiple situations. And really what I think people need to understand is the animals are a tool that the trained therapist uses to access, right, the individual that's with them, whether it's to calm the, you know, client down so that they can focus more with the therapist. Or um, in some situations, I've read some research that have has done work with children that have been abused and maltreated and have trouble trusting. Um, the animal is a bridge right. for trusting. So the animal being there, they can start trusting the animal, they can start trusting the therapist. So in a lot of ways, it's that it's there's a lot of factors that play a role there having animals as that tool and and horses are amazing when it comes to picking up on the cues of humans as well just like dogs they've co-evolved with humans mm-hmm. so they're wonderful at determining well is this individual safe you know right or are they feeling insecure right. and and they can modify their behavior to fit the situation What do we know about how humans differentiate in their minds between companion animals and wild animals? So there's a lot of research that looks at their um, prior experience with animals um, as to how you perceive these differences. So if you're someone who has owned a pet, for example, you may have more positive perceptions of wild animals versus someone who hasn't owned a pet. So familiarity with companion animals really does impact part of your, I guess, 
relationship with the wild species. Maybe a schema for animal yes. thinking. Yeah, and a culture. Thank you for reminding me about that. So culture plays a huge role in that. Um, your belief system as well. You know, whether or not you see an animal as dangerous right? All of these things are learned. And there's even some really cool research that has looked at in the education system, if you can actually change children's perceptions of scary, dangerous animals, right? To have more respect for some of these wild animals that, you know, we don't understand. And you guys are starting on a research project comparing some attitudes of urban and rural students about animals. Talk a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish and how you'll set up that study. So we were really interested with a colleague of mine up at Manhattan College, which is a predominantly urban environment, um, to see if... The knowledge that you gain living, growing up in these different areas impacts your not only perceptions of animal thinking, but also attitudes towards animal use. So hunting, um, using animals in medical research, those types of things. And prior studies have shown that there's a lot of factors like diet, geographic location, even gender that impacts some of these things. So um, we've uh, conducted some research here at UNCP um, and Manhattan College looking at college students' perceptions of animal use and then their belief in animal mind, um, which is a BAM, it's called BAM research, um, to see if there's a relationship between whether or not you think animals are capable of thinking and how you feel it's acceptable to use and treat animals. Do you expect that there will be significant differences between how urban and rural students look at these? So based off of some of the prior research, we do think there will be some differences, but it's not just where you currently live. So we've asked questions about where did you grow up? You know, where do you most identify with? Because that plays a role as well. But even as we were talking about diet, your diet choice, are you a vegetarian? Are you an omnivore? Pescatarian, right? There seems to be some controversy in the literature as to whether or not that plays a role. and um, But some of the studies do show that omnivores tend to be less likely to admit that animals are capable of thinking, especially the food animals. Um, and one of the reasons for that is this whole idea of cognitive dissonance, which, you know, how do I deal with the guilt I feel for eating this animal? Well, they're not that smart, so that's how I deal with my own internal guilt. Um, so we think that might be playing a role in why we see some differences in diet choice, just to help you kind of get through that. Yeah. And how you're raised, I think some folks raised in more rural environments where they are intimately involved in the animal food chain. And they know where their steaks come from and where their chicken comes from and how cows are milked and um, and they have other companion animals that are working animals, dogs that are working animals. Um, Dr. Morrison mentioned the hunters. You've also got farmers who use dogs as um, an integral part of their working ranch. So someone who sees literally every element of an animal's life cycle right. from how helping them to enter in the world to using them in a variety of different ways to being present or being a part of the end of that life for whatever the next purpose of that animal would be in their minds, they might internalize all these issues differently from 
someone whose idea of animals would be walking near Central Park and right. seeing a different set of experiences. Exactly, exactly. Someone, you know, somebody who's just maybe only ever had, you know, a pet and has never been exposed to being in the wilderness and and hunting and and using the, you know, the meat and all of those things are there is definitely I think a difference there. How do you develop instruments to measure the depth of intensity of humans or, for that matter, of animals in the human-animal bond and relationship? So that is the tough part about doing this research is we can, of course, develop questionnaires. There are several questionnaires looking at attachment level to animals. So there's animal attachment questionnaires, you know, but these are all self-report measures, which we know, right, may not always be accurate of the full picture because a person's idea of what their bond is may be different from what the real bond is. So I think moving forward, and other scientists have expressed this, that more observational research needs to be done looking at the actual interactions between the animal and the human along with these self-report measures, and then measuring other factors like physiological measures in the animal. You know, are, you know, are they releasing oxytocin or are they releasing cortisol, which is a stress hormone? You know, are they actually having a positive experience in this relationship as well? As hard as all that is to measure with humans, it's even harder to measure with animals, right? Well, they have to train the dogs to sit in an MRI machine. So you have a, it's it's actually if you ever look up the videos they're they're adorable these little dogs sort of climb in and they and they sit there and they go into the MRI machine but there's just a few of them that, because it requires some intensive training to reward them for sitting there and being still and perhaps a lot of bacon <laughs> yes some sort of treat but the research from it is fascinating because you can actually look at what's happening in the mind of the animal when they smell their human or see their human. Mm-hmm. Do animals select different cues and behaviors um, with humans than they do with animals? How do they see us as just another animal? Or That is the question that I would love to have the answer to. I, I wish I knew how my dog looked at me, like what he really thought when right. he looked at me. He's hugging you. Right? He's yes, hugging me right. with his eyes. Um, I love that, by the way. I really think that... Because we are animals, humans are animals too, that they are looking at us as another animal. Um, and they're forming a bond with us just as they would with another animal. And in some cases, if we're talking about domestic animals, which I know we've mentioned a lot, but we are the caretakers for those animals too. So I feel like there's an opportunity for a stronger bond there than there maybe would be in other situations. But I still think that... The cues they're looking at, um, the body language they're looking at is similar. They're looking at it similarly as if it was another animal. Well, and we know, especially with the domestic dog, they will pay attention to human cues much more than, um, say, a wolf. So if I point at a treat, you know, it's it's rolled somewhere, it's moved somewhere, the, my dog is going to look for that treat. A wolf will not. It'll, like, dude, I don't know what you're doing. Right. You're, why are you waving, why are you waving at yeah. me? But the, but the dog will. So there is that notion that being raised with us, evolving with us, mm-hmm. they've learned our cues and to trust us. You have seven dogs. I do. How similarly or differently do you interact with each of them? Have they all been trained in a similar way? 
Um, what are the what are the interesting personality quirks of having a pack like that? Do you know one of the, I think the most interesting things about having a pack is you're always reminded that your dogs are, are dogs. They are not babies. They are not children. I might refer to them as my children, but they are dogs. And they interact with each other like a dog pack. So, for example, the females in the pack do not always get along. And sometimes you don't know when it's coming, mm. when they become angry with each other in that pack. I, it becomes a little bit difficult to train a pack because they rely on each other less so than me. So they're looking to each other for cues. So I had a stray who arrived who was pregnant. How my pack grew exponentially almost that day. Um, so there were three puppies that I raised together. Potty training them was difficult because they they we we call them the Borg. That they're their hive mind, and you know when one gets worked up, the others get worked up, and um, much more so I think than when it's just you and another dog. I use reward. I'm a, I'm a reward user and, and consistency. And so they all know where to go to eat. To some extent, you have to have some control over them. Otherwise, it's just chaos all the time. And not to say I don't have a chaotic home. It is that consistency and that reward and letting them know when they've done something that I like and that they're going to get treats for and trying to create an environment in which they want to come to me instead of running from me, right. even though... Um, aggravation does happen. Their goal becomes to please you in yes. some part, and that helps them to yes. learn the behaviors yes. and when to practice certain behaviors the and, way you want them to do it. And we operate on a nothing's for free economy in the house with the dogs. So um, generally speaking, if they're going to get a treat, they're going to sit for it. They're going to do something for it. So, um, so they always know. And I think that you can always work in um, choice and control with the animals too you, you don't you don't want it just to be like I want you to do this so you're going to do it because I'm going to give you a reward right. you can still build in choice and control because personalities are there I mean animals all have different personalities we have different personalities you said earlier in the beginning in your introduction that sometimes these things don't mesh well right. together right. and right. so I think by understanding that, hey, maybe sometimes your dog or the dolphin that you're training just doesn't feel like it's just not working. doing anything it's not today. You, it's right? me. We'll yeah. just we'll be friends. But so you just let it go, and okay, so I'll give you your space. I'll yeah. take my space. So I, I think that it really has to be a two-sided relationship yeah. for there to be a good. And one. then a lot of consistency, right? Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. I've had two two dogs in 26 um, uh, years, and I kind of trained them the both way both ways. They'd go out in the yard when they were puppies, and when I wanted them to come in, I would whistle. Well, for the first week or so, when I whistled, they would come to me and they would get a treat. So after a while, I would just whistle, and they would come, and I wouldn't give them a treat every time, but. Then we'd move on to the next thing. If they came right away and they came in but not jumping on us immediately, well, then they would get that. So over time, over a period of uh, six or eight weeks, they understood, look, I'll let you out. You go do your thing. When I'm ready for you to come in, I'll whistle, and you come in, and this is the way you come in. And um, so I just can't imagine not whistling when I'm ready for my dog to come in because – he has trained me yes. as well. Oh, they do? Oh, yes. There's lots of training going from both sides. 
Definitely. So what would you like to learn next? I mean, where's the research going for us to really be able to understand more about this this connection? I think that better measures need to be made looking at the animal, the non-human animal side of the piece. I think that that's what's really lacking is what behavioral measures can we come up with, you know, to really determine you know, how is the animal feeling? Because even if you if you could do that at a meet and greet at a humane society, when you're looking for a pet, you maybe be able to actually match, you know, dogs or cats with mm-hmm. potential owners and you won't see the return rate. You know, you won't see animals coming back to the shelter. So, and I know that there's research looking at that. Um, and more research needs to be done with non-companion animals. You know, we need to look more at the human-animal relationship and bond with animals in captivity and zoos to help, you know, with animal welfare, um, because that's also an issue. I mean, humans are a part of their everyday lives, and so we need to better understand that relationship on both sides. Yeah, and uh, in the end, we all just want to know what our dog or what our cat is thinking when they look at us, right? Right. Well, they're, they're hugging us they're with hugging, their eyes, right? Didn't and we've we just learned that today. That? How exciting. <laughs> um, my dog thinks that every two years I provide him this great um, obstacle course in the backyard. It was called Hurricane Matthew and then Hurricane <laughs> Florence because we had like four or more feet of standing water all across our backyard in the wood pile for my fireplace. He got dislodged by all of it. So my dog looks at me when the water finally starts to go away and like, is it over already? The amusement park is over already? Um, and he was just so excited to run around and uh, and to jump over all of these obstacles re- rearranged by the hurricane. And then when it was over and my son and I are in the backyard and we're putting the yard back together, he's got this look like, really? Does it have to end so soon? Well, to your home during the hurricane. And so you're around more, and he has to love that. Yeah, well. You know, the people are right at home. And I hope so. From yeah. his perspective. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. I would he loves stick it with when it. I'm around. Well, this has been a great discussion and a wonderful insight into how we interact with animals and what they might be thinking and how we might measure it. Thank you to Kelly and Rachel, and tune in next time for another edition of 30 Brave Minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Today's podcast was edited by Richard Gay and transcribed by Janet Gentis. Theme music created by Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go Braves! Good job, everybody!